This is The Guardian. A 300-year-old institution, a decades-long scandal and a government scrabbling to catch up. The post office has left a trail of destruction ever since the day that Horizon was introduced. We're just sitting around, chatting about it, while they're still ruining lives. At last, what a lot of people call the biggest miscarriage of justice in British history has caught the attention of the government. Today I can announce that we will introduce new primary legislation to make sure that those convicted as a result of the Horizon scandal are swiftly exonerated and compensated. We may have a new rule of British public life. If you're the victim of an injustice, the best route to getting it resolved is to get a big broadcaster to make a four-part drama about it. I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. Joining me today is The Guardian columnist Gabby Hinslow. Hello, Gabby. Hello, John. Happy New Year, in fact. It feels like Happy New Year, obviously. Yes, it may not be the happiest year. We'll talk about that in due course. Today we will be talking about the Horizon Post Office scandal and 2024, which, with an election seemingly unlikely before November, is threatening to be a very long political year indeed. Um, Anyway, let's talk about the post office. Rishi Sunak has just announced on Wednesday at PMQs that the government will be introducing new primary legislation to exonerate the many, many postmasters and postmistresses affected by the Horizon scandal. Now, we all know what sparked this, um, ITV's brilliant drama, Mr. Bates versus the Post Office. And I know it's brilliant because I watched it. That's finally broken open a scandal that goes back over 20 years. The magazine Computer Weekly first covered this story back in 2009. So it's not illegitimate to ask why it's taken so long for this to break through to the political foreground. Gabby, you've written about this recently. Just run us through very briefly the history of this scandal and where we've got up to now. So for those who didn't see the drama, um, it starts really back in the 1990s when the post office gets this new whizzy computer system made by Fujitsu, which is supposed to make it easier for post offices to sort of tot up their accounts at the end of the day. Um, and very quickly, you start seeing discrepancies emerging, sort of weird shortfalls that, that sub-postmasters can't explain. You know, money seems to have gone missing, but there's none, they haven't done anything wrong. And initially, all of them, none of them realises that there's another person in the same position so they're told by the post office it's just them um and so it's probably the sort of mid noughties before people start to realize that this is you know a more general issue and that they start sort of to galvanize themselves 2009 um computer weekly as you said runs the first big article about it and that's when the issue starts filtering up um 2012 paula venels comes in as new ceo of the post office and it's under her that things first start you know to be taken seriously, the idea of getting to the bottom of this problem, but it's still three years before um, prosecutions are finally suspended in 2015. So all that time, people are still being taken to court. There's an attempt to mediate with the sub-postmasters, and then in 2019, um, they they take a court action, get fed up with waiting, take a court action, win this great victory in 2019, which leads to Boris Johnson setting up a public inquiry in 2020. Gets, same, same year, Paula Venels gets a CBE. Leaves, she leaves and gets a CBE, that's just before the court case, I think. So she is both the CEO who presided over you know, the end into the prosecutions and attempting to make it right. But she's also the person who the sub-postmasters would say dragged it out for three years at the beginning. And for what it's worth, Paula Venels in the last three or four days has handed back her CBE. 
And the numbers, let's not forget, are stark. Over a 16-year period, the post office wrongly accused about 3,500 branch-owned operators of theft, fraud and false accounting, resulting in more than 700 prosecutions, despite knowing from at least 2010 that there were deep faults in the Horizon IT system. That's the sort of core of the story. Yep. And I think what the public inquiry is going to have to unravel is who knew what when. At what point should the post office have been starting to put, you know, together the pieces about what it knew? At what point should government have have um, been jumping on them saying, what are you doing about this or should have should have known? Because government, you know, the relationship between government and the post office is that uh, the post office is privately independent, is an operating, independently operating business, but that uh, there's one sole shareholder and that is the government, i.e. us. So... They were. They had a civil servant sitting on the board throughout. Right. By way of really getting into this story, we are now joined by Chris Head. Now, Chris was a sub postmaster in West Bolden, just outside Newcastle upon Tyne. Uh, the Horizon scandal became part of his life in late 2014, and he was soon asked to pay back an alleged and completely mistaken shortfall of over £80,000. Tell us what happened to you. You had started work, I am told, in your local post office when you were 12. And then you moved to you moved to ownership when you were 18. And then tell us tell us when the Horizon scandal, your end of it, first began to rear its head. Yes, I mean, I, I started delivering newspapers from when I was 12. Um, I continued my work on my open and started to work behind the counter uh, from when, when I was around about 14. And, and then I went on to buy the business when I turned 18. Um, so it had literally been my entire life. And from the very beginning, um, I had issues with the Horizon system. But coming to 2014, if we, we fast forward a little bit, I had a lot of problems with the Horizon system. Every single morning I was coming into the branch, uh, into the, the news agent part, I was noticing that the Horizon system wasn't online. It was purple screen. And, and um, we were getting messages on the screen of the, the terminal saying the data is corrupt. Uh, it's not sending data to, to the data center. So we, we were in contact with our technical help desk and they were sending engineers uh, for, for, for all, almost six months. And they were replacing routers. They were replacing ADSL cables. They were replacing different parts of the equipment. Post office even brought in British Telecom in order to replace a phone line in the street because they thought that maybe that was the problem. And eventually we called the help desk again. And they said, why has nobody suggested you replace the entire Horizon terminal? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not the expert. We know we, we've been talking about this for months. And they eventually agreed to replace the Horizon terminal. But because you only balance on a monthly basis, somewhere in between the last engineer visiting and obviously them agreeing to replace the Horizon terminal, I went to balance uh, at the end of the month. And it showed a discrepancy of over £40,000. Whoa. Just tell me about that moment and how you felt and what your sense was of what that was going to mean for you in your life in that moment when that shortfall was first yeah, revealed. Because there's already been smaller amounts and we've been repaying them. And obviously I knew that the post of a stance was that, you know, if, if you can't find or prove the problem, then obviously you have to make it good. You know, at that moment in time, I'm sitting there, well, where do I find £40,000 from? You know, they're going to ask me to repay this money if I cannot prove that it's a, it, it, where, where the error is, you know, where the discrepancy is. So, you, you know, you go into kind of like panic mode. And even in 2014, just to be clear, you were told by the helpline that you were having unique issues. Is that right? Yes, yeah, like substantial issues. I mean, they're all the, the, the minor problems that they put down to human error, you know, that's, oh, you must have made a mistake. You've, you've miskeyed something or you've, you know, you've handed over an extra £10 note over the counter. That's where their minor discrepancies have come from. So they still said you know, that there's nobody having these bigger magnified problems. 
And what happened next as regards the, the £40,000 and, and the idea that, that they were going to force you to pay it back? Is that what happened? No. So what, what happened is that, you know, we, we were still look, looking into the problem, trying to find out, you know, through all the, the reams and going back through records to try and find out where, where this has come in from. And within a matter of weeks, that amount doubled to over £80,000, which is where we got to, to the amount. And you were ultimately accused of theft and suspended, is that what? Yeah, so the, 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 they did an audit and obviously they, they counted the physical cash hold and that was there. They asked me to sign a, um, a declaration to say that I agreed with the amount of cash that was there, which is what, what, what I did. And then they tried to use that on the basis that I agreed that there was a discrepancy, but that was not what was agreed. It was agreed that we'd done a count together. They had counted, I had counted, and we'd agreed the physical hold, and that was there. So I was immediately suspended, and then they proceeded to do an investigation. I was invited to uh, uh, what, what they call like a, a voluntary interview, and um, we took a solicitor. And it's only when you sit down there at their desk and they bring out the tape recorder and, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, they say that, you know, oh, this interview is now going to be conducted under caution. And, you know, they start to read your rights and you think, you know, this is scary. We thought yeah. we we're going to do it. Yeah, of course, scary. Yeah, we, we think this is a voluntary interview, you know, so kind of thing. And we're going to, like, try and find out where the problems come on and get to the bottom of it. Uh, and that obviously what clearly wasn't, uh, clearly wasn't, the, wasn't the case. And instead, you're being treated like a criminal. And presumably at that point as well, that was when it becomes public. You know, other be- it's, I'm guessing it's a fairly small village. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows you've been suspended. Yes, exactly. I mean, that, that's when, you know, because I'd been in the village from such a young age, at 12, and I had such a connection to all of the people there. Cause I, you know, I'd, I'd grown up from, from the age of one in, in the same village that the atmosphere around you completely changes. You know, there, there will always be that level of doubt because... We're talking about a public institution here that was, well, it's not now, is it? But I mean, it was once known as the most, uh, the UK's most trusted band. And wh- and where are you as regards compensation and and the resolution of your case? In terms of that, um, I was one of the first people in the um, government-ran scheme, the Group Litigation Order Scheme, which is for the original five five five, and we put a claim into that scheme in uh, June twenty twenty three. And I kept getting communications back from the Department for Business and the government saying, you know, we're taking our time because um, we want to make you a meaningful offer. And I got an offer from them on the 28th of December, uh, just, just a few weeks ago. And they offered less than 15% of the claim of the, what the professional oh. claim they put forward. God, so what, so what's sitting here now in the wake of what Rishi Sunak has announced in your case would feel to you like justice? What are you waiting for? Well, now, I mean, obviously, they've announced again the specific seventy-five thousand pounds interim payment for the, for my specific group of people. You know, that the 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 five five five. The problem is that the amounts are coming in dribs and drabs. But they've got a full claim there that has been quantified by experts. Why? You know, they're saying on one hand they're speaking with like a forked tongue because they're saying on one hand we want to restore postmasters back to the position they would have been in had this scandal not happened. But yet, on the other hand, they're offering you less than fifteen percent of the claim. So. And also, you can't presumably be restored. I mean, I don't know what you've been doing since you had to to leave the post office, but just in terms of lost earnings over those years, I mean, it must have been very difficult to get another job with the shadow of this hanging over you, I'm guessing. Exactly. I mean, I I struggled for, uh, I sold the business at the end of 2015 for a loss because obviously I'd lost the post office side. So the damage to the the retail part of the business was substantial because all, all the people that visited the post office on a daily basis had to go into another village in order to... To, to carry out their transactions. So it meant that I lost all of the footfall. 
and then trying to search alternative employment. But like like you say, with all of the um, ne- negative publicity around and mm-hmm. everything that you're being accused of, trying to find work was extremely difficult. And after nine months of searching and not being put forward for jobs um, and things like that, I ended up even leaving the country to try and move away and re- um, re- rebuild my life. You've se- you've seen the drama. Oh, you must have done, obviously. I have, yes. There's a point in the drama where a character called Bob, who is who is sort of appointed between um, the MP James Arbuthnot and the post office to look into what's happened. He goes to meet Lee, the postmaster from Bridlington, and he starts crying in response to Lee's story. And he says, I don't know how you people are still standing. In your case, what's the answer to that? Because I, I, I don't think, you know, listening to what you've said, most people could, could even begin to cope with what's happened to you. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm just one of the kind of people that always has a positive outlook on things that obviously things will work out um, and persevere with it. And I think that I've managed to to get through this because obviously I was part of a group of people that understood. You know, I think the, the general public at the time didn't really have any idea. So you, you couldn't talk even to your own family because they didn't understand the true complexity of it all, even though that they'd gone through it with me partially, they had, they weren't in my shoes. They, they had no involvement with the business, but the general public had even less idea what was going on. What drove me the most is that, you know, there, there's, there's a number of people in the group who are very elderly and they can't, mm. they, they know, they don't have, they don't have as strong a voice as what, you know, they're not as, unfortunately, not, not as young as I am in order to that, that you can fight back and, and try and do something. And I took, you know, solace that, it would be important what I could play as part of that group that would obviously hopefully help somebody else within that group. And I think that's what's got me through. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Thanks so much. Tell me what you're thinking after hearing that, Gary. It's just extraordinary what they've been through and how long it's hung over them, how much they've lost in in all kinds. You know, it's not just the money, is it? It's your standing in a community. It's your relationships with other people it's your trust in authority and for some you know for the people who went to prison obviously it was their their liberty it's just so extraordinary that it could carry on for so long when i watched mr bates versus the post office on consecutive nights on tv emotionally it did two things really it awakens your sense of outrage but it's also profoundly moving and upsetting you know i cried a lot as i watched it and the point is all the things that made me feel outraged and made me cry were evident years ago, right? And then the question then arises, which I suppose is a political question, which is why it took an ITV drama going out in the new year of 2024 to make Rishi Sunak do anything. And let, or not just Rishi Sunak, the entire Everything. machinery of government, right? And not just, let's be honest as well, not just politicians to make the public wake up to it. Because I think, you know, this story has been coming out in dribs and drabs and little bits here and little bits there. But it's not like it's a state secret. So what's the answer? What, what's the answer, do you think? Certainly in political terms, part of the problem is, you know, as we discussed earlier, you've got to the stage where you've had an admission, you've had, you know, they've won their court case, there's been a public inquiry launch, there's been a compensation scheme announced by government. And I think in Westminster terms, that was filed under, certainly for me as a journalist, it's been something that's been around, you know, on the fringes of my professional life for God knows how long. And that was filed under... It's sorted now. They've won. They've got their, their. Everyone's agreed that it was terrible and it was wrong. And now the sort of public inquiry will find everyone guilty and they're getting the money. And it kind of falls into this black hole where you think something's been done about that and no one is chasing the process. Now, as we know right now, a lot of people are falling over themselves to score political points on the back of all this, right? Yeah, really edifyingly. Um, 
It's very, very noticeable that uh, large swathes of the Conservative Party, this happened at Prime Minister's Questions via the typically elegant contribution of Lee Anderson, but it's also happening in the right-wing press. They're all going after Ed Davey, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, who was the Minister of Postal Affairs in the coalition government. 2010 to 12, yeah. Ed Davey, yes, he was Postal Affairs Minister during a period, and we should say at this point, every party has its hand in this, which is perhaps another reason it hasn't become a big cause celebrity. All, all three you know, the, of the them the complaints, the main Westminster so-called The main complaints started under a Labour government, tail end of a Labour government, you know, and I think we might see Pat McFadden, who was Postal Affairs Minister right at the end, you know, I think we'll possibly start going to see some questions being asked about his what he did or didn't do. So then you've got Ed Davey and Joe Swinton and Norman Lamb, all Lib Dem Postal Affairs Minister only one of them is currently leader as a Lib Dem, so funnily enough, that's yeah, the one Vince, that everyone's Vince going Cable, after. the former business secretary, his name exactly. has been mentioned as well. But again, Ed, the fire is concentrating on Ed Davey because Ed Davey's the person with a uh, with a you know a politically exposed position here as, as current leader of the Lib Dems. Yeah, and then you know obviously beyond that, it has been under a successive Conservative governments that the clean up hasn't quite happened. So you know every party has some degree of responsibility here. As Chris said, there's two parts of justice here. One is the money and the compensation. The other is some kind of verdict that says. This is where responsibility lies. Yeah, yeah. And I think frustratingly for them, it's going to be in lots of different places. Part of it's going to be political, part of it's going to be in the post office, part of it's going to be in Fujitsu, the company that basically um, invented the software that didn't work. It seems that in some ways, this is a sort of quintessential modern story in two senses. It's a story that really resonates with our mood of national malaise, I would argue, and the sense of sort of big institutions that are now out of control, water companies, electricity providers now the post office. And then the other thing is, it's a story about what happens when you automate everything and you invest all of your trust in these huge, impersonal, supposedly infallible systems. And in that sense, as I watched Mr. Bates versus the post office, I wondered whether this would be the last scandal of its kind or only the first. Because we all move in a world in which we're dependent on helplines and press one for this and five for that. And computers tell us what has and hasn't happened. And we're told... uh, beyond complaint, right? I think there's a real issue here, particularly as we move into a kind of more AI-enabled future where more processes are automated, where there are fewer humans involved along the chain. And we think of, we fall into the habit of thinking machines are infallible and therefore, you know, if the machine says you're guilty, then you you must be guilty. Right. On that note, we will pause here for a moment. When we come back, we will be joined by Raphael Baer to look at the politics of 2024 and what this year is going to bring. Welcome back. Gabby Hinsliff is still with me, and we're now joined by The Guardian columnist Raphael Baer. Hello, Raph. Hello, John. Hello, Gabby. Happy Hello. New Year, in fact. And to you. Such a great New Year. Now, here's a little peek behind the curtain. On my script, it says, New Year, same shit. As a little encapsulation of this particular chunk of the podcast. Um, <laughs> after months, that's how we all feel, after months of political journalists desperately trying to read the tea leaves for the date of the next election... Rishi Sunak has said that in all likelihood the UK should expect to go to the polls in the second half of this year, with the expected date being November. Should we just hear what he said? My working assumption is we'll have a general election in the second half of this year. And in the meantime, I've got lots that I want to get on with. Uh, This Saturday, we'll be introducing a significant tax cut for millions of people in work, worth on average £450 for an average worker. Because we've halved inflation, we want to keep managing the economy well and cutting people's taxes. And I want to keep tackling illegal migration. 
we're meant, aren't we, I suppose, particularly on our side of politics, broadly speaking, to go into election year feeling hopeful and energised, but it doesn't really feel like that. Partly, I suppose, because of this purgatorial <laughs> 10 months that in all likelihood we've now been plunged into. Here's a question, Raf. What do you think it means to have a possible 10-month campaign period? I'm just envisaging, to paraphrase George Orwell, you know, the idea that if you want a vision of the future, imagine a senior politician in shirt sleeves with his tie tucked in visiting a factory forever. Yeah, I think there's no way to escape the fact that it's going to be very demoralising. And I think there are probably two components of that. One is that the government has just run out of ideas. So, you know, in the past, if you think even the late 90s, the, the John Major administration had stuff to do towards the end of New Labour under Gordon Brown. I mean, apart from dealing with the financial crisis, I mean, they got the Equalities Bill through. And that was serious legislation. That was a real project. It was privatising the railways around that point as well. Yeah, you know, even whether you like it or not, it was a big thing that they were doing and it had a, a sort of purpose. I really feel now that this administration has got absolutely nothing and what they are actually doing is salting the earth and just actually trying to spoil, willfully spoil the legacy that they largely expect Labour to inherit. And you see that in the in the sort of the fiscal plan to, you know, to cutting taxes, trying to make the, the situation so difficult for Labour to actually have any revenue that they could realistically use to do what they want to do. So that in itself, that sort of pernicious and unpleasant but also because the only campaign that the conservatives have now got is really one that absolutely delegitimizes the very idea of labor government and it will be you know even more uh, sort of vindictively personal and mendacious in the treatment of what the labor party is and who Keir Starmer is and what his record is uh, than usual uh, and uh, that from that sense I just think the months of that is going to be is going to present politics at its absolute worst at a time when we really would want democracy to be something that we can celebrate as one of the good things that, about this country that you get to have peaceful regime change at the ballot box. You feel as excited as Raf, Gabby? Roll up for a cracking series of politics weekly podcasts <laughs> from this dystopian nightmare. No, I think it's going to I think it's going to be a bad tempered year, is what I think mainly, because I think the Conservative Party have reached that point where they clearly all hate each other and just need to be separated for the good of the children. You know, the two wings of the party just cannot agree on anything yeah, at yeah. all. I think the electorate is mainly thinking, Oh, for God's sake, just get on with it. We all know it's coming. Just, you know, just get on with it, put everyone out of their misery. So I think that makes for an extremely bad-tempered, resentful climate even before you get down to the usual sort of dirtiness of an election campaign. If you own one of the few nurseries that hasn't yet gone out of business, prepare to be visited by numbers of, of politicians seeking voter opportunities. Nurseries or digger factories seem to be the two. Um, let's talk about the Conservative Party specifically. Now, Rishi Sunak, I mean, only a matter of months ago at the last Tory conference, he was like Rishi the revolutionary, wasn't he? It was all about overturning 30 years of political failure. Now, all of a sudden, he's the man saying, we've got to stick with him because the current plan is working. We've gone from change to continuity. And in the midst of all that, by way of highlighting one of the big and fairly toxic themes that's going to run through the next nine or 10 months, the Rwanda bill um, hits the commons next week um what do you think raf about where he is and that sort of inherent inconsistency in his message i mean self-evidently he could not be the candidate of change i mean it was i i, I sort of understand how they must have thought this is a counterintuitive bold gambit that you know autumn 
conference last year. This is the last thing they're expecting us to do and it will turn the tables. But it was just stupid. They've been incumbent for 14 years. He doesn't have his own mandate. Clearly, what they have now alighted on is the only campaign they can plausibly run, which doesn't mean it'll work, but it's the only one, it's the least worst option available to them, which is, you know, we're just about stabilising things. The economy is going to start picking up. For God's sake, don't trust Labour. They always ruin the economy. They'll always make it worse. I mean, that's off. You know, that's the off the pay campaign. That's the one they're going to run. And I don't. Yeah, think the Labour the Labour Party is is um, is nicer to refugees and immigrants than the Tory Party, which is dependably nasty. That's the other sort of strut that's of the their other thing. Campaign. I mean, they take it. It's interesting by becoming um, by moving from being the change candidate to the changed his mind about being the change candidate candidate. Uh, he has kind of neutralised what was one of the Tories' better attacks on on Keir Starmer, which was, oh, he's Mr. Flip-Flop, you know, you don't know what he stands for, he's constantly changing his mind. Well, that's now Rishi Sunak, who's become, I mean, I think it's a mark of quite an ex- inexperienced team at number 10, perhaps, but they, they just sort of, it's kind of throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. But nothing, therefore, has a chance to sort of settle in the Well, that's what governments mind. at their fag end tend to do, That is what obviously. governments at their fag end tend to do. Right, I just want to move this on a bit to the fact that Rishi Sunak's government, it seems, is faced with another three by-elections. First of all, there's the fact that Peter Bone, the disgraced Tory MP for Wellingborough, uh, has been sent on his way. So there's going to be a by-election there where the current Conservative majority is 18,540. Labour fancies its chances. You've also got Chris Skidmore in Kingswood on the sort of Bristol-Gloucestershire borders. He's thrown in the towel as as a matter of principle in objection to the government's um, reversal of a lot of its climate um, emergency policies. And then potentially you've got Scott Benton in Blackpool South. Here's a question. I mean, this happened last year, didn't it? A a run in short order of by-election losses. Can this government sustain another three by-election losses? Does there come a point at which it's just... The game is self-evidently up. I mean, you, you come to a point where you think, rather than re-electing every single member of this parliament individually, we could try doing it all in one go, in a general election style. But I think, I mean, to be honest, after all the by-election losses that they've taken, another three isn't going to make three? things any worse or any better. You know, I don't think it makes a difference. They're all slightly different seats. You know, Wellingborough is your classic old school, old school sort of Tory homeland. Blackpool was was Labour for Red, a long time Red before. Wall, you know, Red so Wall. they're all they're all very different kind of seats. But all of them will tell us if they if they go the way we expect them to. All of them will just be telling us the polls are right. You know, what you can see in the polls, what you've been seeing in the polls for a year is right. I think that's um, important. That there, there is a general rule i think in politics whenever people say it can't possibly go on like this you know it will and it does <laughs> it really can <laughs> uh, and i i sense that you know actually probably the way this is this plays out is more sustaining the inability of number 10 to change to, to get any kind of grip on the on the narrative to start imposing any conversation on politics uh, on Rishi Sunak's terms and it will just look more and more like he is a victim of circumstance which you know as Gabby was saying would sort of reinforce the sense that there is uh, a, a an almost inevitable march towards Labour government which actually makes Labour very uncomfortable I mean they're not pretending to uh, be afraid of complacency, as it were. They, they, they. You know, you speak to people on the the shadow front bench, uh, and you know there is this this. I don't know if you've heard about this slideshow that Morgan McSweeney, you know, Keir Starmer, the strategist, has circulated, showing all the elections in recent years, going back five, ten years, where something surprising has happened literally in the campaign or in the months before polling day to say, look, none of this is in the bag. There is an enormously powerful uh, sort of media industrial political complex that even if you know it 
can't really endorse the Tories. It can do an enormous amount of damage to Labour just by making the national conversation one that makes Keir Starmer uncomfortable and can suppress uh, Labour votes. So the longer it goes on, again, I think it just becomes, you know, simultaneously it feels inevitable, but also more brittle, the fact that Labour are are on course to win. We've said this um, before on this podcast, but there is an idea around, really, that Brexit, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, and their, all their grand lofty promises really meant that the currency of hope in politics was completely spent. The, the public was promised great sunlit up plans and national revival, and none of it happened, right? And the Labour Party, it seems to me, is sort of operating on that understanding, that the public's appetite for politicians telling them that things are going to be much, much better and, you know, Britain can be the country it ought to be and all that is very, very small. And therefore, Keir Starmer is campaigning in this very sort of modest, almost sort of introverted way. We had this speech about a frank hope, whatever that is, um, you know, this idea that you have to have hope, but you have to be honest about what um, it is that you might be able to achieve um, with that hope. I think, I mean, I, I've, I've sat, I'm as guilty of this as anyone sitting here saying, oh God, you know, we could all do with a bit more pizzazz. I think we've reached the point where pizzazz is almost irrelevant. You know, the electoral offer here now is, would you like this quite nice, slightly boring bloke or would you like a punch in the face and at that point you know the quite nice quite boring bloke he becomes pizzazz is not really relevant here to the choice pizzazz is relevant in the run-up to the election for two reasons one is that for people who are not otherwise paying a lot of attention to politics or are turned off politics or are low information voters or whatever you need a bit of you know showbiz to g people up and make them realize there's actually an election on and should probably come out and you desperately need it in the first six months of a new government when actually people are like well where is the change then where is the where is the transformation you know and at that point you need to be able to kind of keep people with you till something starts to actually tangibly shift but I don't think we all know by now who Keir Starmer is not going to change yeah I think there's a, a tendency to slightly misread what what is absent from the Keir Starmer offer here I mean we've all covered politics long enough to know that Literally every opposition leader is accused of lacking vision, optimism, and then policy. And then they make a speech that is basically it's essentially. Actually, no one accused Jeremy Corbyn of that, but then he lost spectacularly in 2019. <laughs> okay, but even then, I mean, yeah, well, actually, that's true. But, the, but we, I've certainly heard the allegation made against lots and lots of politicians that there's no vision, there's no optimism, there's no policy. And they make a speech saying, here's my optimistic vision clad in policy, and no one pays any attention, <laughs> reports it. And so. You know, and I do have a certain sympathy. And I think what's actually the sort of the, the deficiency in Keir Starmer isn't actually that he doesn't try and do hope or optimism and he doesn't have policies. It's that he's a very private, reticent man by temperament. And what he lacks actually is the ability to fill the gaps yeah, yeah. In, with his character, to just do that yeah, thing yeah. that Blair was good at, that Cameron was good at, and sort of decanting a little bit of warm personality into the space where actually you don't have an answer. But at the moment, expecting a private, reticent man to let it all hang out, to fill that space where he's not going to give more targets to the Tories to attack, that, that, you know, that's just yeah, the quiet happen. man is not going to turn up the volume, as someone once said. But there is a sort of disconnect between uh, our national condition right now and the smallness of the political debate, which partly centres on Keir Starmer. Now, you can make the argument, and, and I know this is true, you know, even Mrs Thatcher in 1979 didn't say, I am the revolution and I'm going to change society comprehensively from top to bottom. She was much more modest than that, as was Blair in 97, right? So let's take that as read. Nonetheless, as a sort of analytical observation, it does feel odd that we all know that the country is falling apart in all sorts of ways. 
Councils are going bankrupt. Our infrastructure is collapsing. And politics, by comparison with that, or in the midst of it, does feel unnecessarily modest to the point that it feels quite frustrating. I think if you look at it from a politician's point of view, it feels like a disconnect, like the problem is so big and the solutions are so yeah. small. If you look at it from an economic point of view, there's a complete and utter connection, which is, you know, we are a stagnant, unproductive, unsuccessful, frankly, our better days are behind us kind of economy at the moment, which means we have no money to spend, which means we've only got small ideas that don't cost anything. You know, economically, it all hangs together and makes a sort of grim um, logical sense. Politically, it feels at odds. Raf, do you accept that or buy that idea that there is a disconnection between the sort of gravity of our national circumstances and what we hear what we hear from politicians? Intuitively, yes, but I'm slightly torn on this, and I wonder whether there is an extent to which actually you know, there an appetite for, as it were, a macro strategic analysis of how Britain becomes a different country is the, the sort of thing that. Um, people like me want to hear, but actually you've just got to be realistic about you know, that's not what politics is to most people. And actually we shouldn't confuse a determination to talk in retail terms about you know, just you know, getting waiting lists down or you know, just fixing, I don't know, sort of engaging with the lived experience in quite a parochial way. We shouldn't confuse that with having no wider conception of, of, of the issue. I think there is another hazard, which is actually a different kind of parochialism of thinking Britain is uniquely messed up and nothing works and our health service is an absolute shambles and our transport doesn't work and actually many many countries have equivalent conversations and I, I just think domestic politics has to focus on the challenges that domestic politicians are most responsible for and trying to sort of zoom out too far you're just not going to connect with the electorate who ultimately you, you need to appeal to to win power you're really not and also you know this is easily forgotten but there are a lot of voters out there that the Labour Party needs to vote for it who take a lot of dissuading from the idea that the Labour Party has something dangerous about it and it's either going to spend all the money or do all sorts of outrageous things right and that's where this sort of modest politics comes from i can write columns fuming about about how boring the results of it are but i understand where it comes from i understand where it comes from too but there's also i mean there's probably a smaller group of voters but there is a group of voters um who have the opposite problem which is being appalled by how unadventurous and how unambitious the labor party seems and tempted by you know some more radical alternative should one come along ah, which this see, week a, it did well that's yes. the, so yeah this is the last question just or about the, the quite, role anyway. that, that mm. will be played in politics leading up to the election by forces other than the conservative and labor parties and we we've talked about the lib dems a bit in the context of the post office scandal um there is a question isn't there about the reform party or whatever it's now called <laughs> what became of uh, UKIP for the Conservative Party. And there's also a question for the Labour Party, certainly in a small patch of North London, about a new force on the left that may be led by Jeremy Corbyn. Yes. So we have obviously um, Nigel Farage, post I'm a celebrity, um, bring me back into the Reform Party, which is not quite what the programme's called, um, seeing his moment to uh, get back on the political scene as long as Richard Tice will get out of the way for him. And at the same time, you have this rumour or whatever it is, whatever status it has um, about a new party led by Jeremy Corbyn, possibly or possibly not, um, starting up on the left, which I think... You hear it and you immediately think, oh, my God, that's, you know, the Labour Party is going to split itself in two again and manage to lose the election, even in a post situation where it couldn't possibly lose it. And actually, I think thinking about that, the bigger threat of a Jeremy Corbyn radical left party, I think, would probably be to the Greens, because that's where most of the people who would vote for it have 
probably gone. In conclusion, Raf, then it seems that the Tory party has more to worry about as regards Nigel Farage than the Labour Party does from Jeremy Corbyn and his possible new left force. Yeah, I think there's even a potential dividend for, for Keir Starmer if you have a tiny fringe radical left party with Jeremy Corbyn in it. It just makes it much harder for the Tories to argue that, that Keir Starmer has any continuity with Jeremy Corbyn. So that's actually a win for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also worth remembering that Nigel Farage, you know, the longer game for him is is the sort of vulture picking over the corpse of a badly defeated Conservative Party and ending up leading something. You know, If he ends up leading a, a moribund post-defeat Tory-ish party that's merged with reform that has 20-25%, that's small uh, and not able to form a government, but it's way bigger than any party he's ever led before. And that, so that as a strategic target for him should send chills down the spine of Conservative strategists. And the rest of us, right? On that note, we shall stop. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Weekly UK wherever you get your podcast and perhaps leave us a review. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier and the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 